0: Episode 1086 from Goodness to Holiness. Episode <laughs> ah, I was going to do a subtitle. Sorry, this is going to be a, a long uh, this is
1: going to be a mouthful. Go ahead. I'll keep everything.
0: All right. Episode 1086 from Goodness to Holiness Part 1. HPP. Nope, I got to back up. Sorry. HPP.
1: Like a website?
0: No. There should have only been 1P.
1: HTTPS? Okay, let me back up again. All right.
0: Episode 1086, From Goodness to Holiness, Part 1, HP, AC, and JRRT. It all makes sense. It'll all make sense.
1: Welcome to the Sci Fi Christian, bringing you theology at warp speed. I'm Matt Anderson.
0: And I am Ben Di Bono.
1: And we're here for a trilogy. Another trilogy? You've been teasing it for a couple weeks. I'm excited to get to it. I don't exactly know. I mean, I know the the main theme, but I don't exactly know where these episodes are going. So I'm along for the ride.
0: Yeah, and I think I've been teasing it fairly heavily on the Patreon Hmm. feed. And and for those who listen to Patreon, and and you all should, patreon.com slash sci-fi Christian, it's just $3 uh, unless you want to hear gross stories and everything, in which case it's just $7. Uh, but I've been I've been kind of playing out with a lot of these ideas over there, and that's part of what I like on the Patreon feed. And, you know, as we're doing different read-throughs, like we just finished Heart of Darkness, Apocalypse Now, you know, a lot of these themes come up, and it, it becomes a way to maybe practice out some of these ideas. So if you've been listening to those, you'll hear some familiarity, but I think you're going to hear uh, a lot that's new as well. And so, where where this what I want to do here today is I've got three episodes in mind uh, for this thematic trilogy, and I do think they're they're going to be a little bit more than just thematic. I think they're going to build on each other, and they're going to make a sustained argument. Um, and we'll get to the the first part of that, but I actually want to start with just a little bit of prologue to the entire three episodes and sort of set the table on what we're going after a bit. And part of what we're going after is a, a, an idea that I heard recently and it's been rolling around in my brain a lot and it's been resonating with a lot of things I think we've talked about both over the years on the show but then especially more recently. And it's that there's a difference between goodness and holiness. And that's why this this series is called from goodness to holiness. And when I first heard that, it was like, you know, sometimes you just hear an obvious concept and it makes all the pieces fall into place. And that was one for me. Like, okay, so there's a difference between goodness and holiness. Well, what's that about? You know, what is the difference between them? And I started thinking about, you know, where we're at as a society. And it's like there's this whole push as a society, towards um, wanting to make things better. You know, we've talked about this before, and there's a lot of good that comes out of this. Wanting to lift people out of poverty, wanting to make the world a better place, wanting to make things safer, wanting to provide clean water. And it's like, all of that's good. All of that's good, you know? But as an end in and of itself— I've found myself questioning more and more, and I've done some of this questioning here on the show, is that enough? Is that enough? Or is there something more that we're going to go after? And I'm not suggesting for a second— that the alternatives are better. Like clearly it's better to lift people out of poverty than it is to leave them in absolute poverty. It's better to ha- let, let people have clean water than it is to uh, not let them have clean water. It's better to get rid of racism in our society than to allow racism to continue in our society. And so there's a lot of good That comes out of this. It's why we call it goodness, right? You know, maybe not everything that goes under that label is truly good, but there's a lot to be said for the name of goodness. It's better than the alternative. But is it enough? Is it enough? There's a lot of iterations of this as we start to think through this. You know, I think of like maybe the conservative religious version of this would be following the rules, you know. You know, get yourself saved, and then just keep your nose out of trouble, so you don't go to hell. It's like, okay, that's a that's better than the alternative, right? Like that's better than going to hell. You know, I'm on board with it. Uh, you think of like all the push for maybe in a more liberal iteration of it is the push for accept everybody, no matter where they're at, what they are, all of that. It's like, okay. You know, it's better to accept people than it is to push them into suicide or push them into hating themselves or something like this. Now, I'm not on board with the pronoun thing, but it's better to use people's pronouns than it is to have people committing suicide, you know? And so it's like, okay, ah, I can get there. I can get there. I, you know, I'm, I'm not there with the pronoun thing, but it's just as an example, it's like you can see... The arguments being made towards be better, you know, be kinder, be nicer, be more accepting. And it all kind of comes out to don't rock the boat. Like, just, and you'll hear this formula used in social media and Twitter, Facebook, all of that. Like, be a nice human, be a good human. It's a very obnoxious turn of phrase. And I but I also think it's very revealing, like it it reduces the human to the level of a a dog who's being told not to pee on the carpet, you know, but it's like, okay, you get there. Why? Because the alternative where we're bullying each other and raping and pillaging and murdering and all of these horrible things, just being a nice person is better. You know, even Jesus gets this treatment. I have brought this up, like the show Good Omens, which I was a big fan of. I, I loved Good Omens, but it has a scene early on where the angel and demon are watching the crucifixion, and I think one of them asks, like, well, what'd they get him for? Well, he, he said to be nice to each other. Oh, well, that'll do it. That's a funny line, but it's like the idea then is, well, this is what Jesus called us to do, is to just be nice to each other, to just be kind, to be good people. And if you're like me, When you hear all of that, on the one hand, you have the reaction that says, yes, yes, better than the alternative in a lot of ways, better than going to hell, you know, better than, than making people hate themselves because they're fat or they're gay or whatever, better than that. And then you feel another part of yourself just die because with that is this slide into apathy. And that's where our culture is going. It's not that goodness is wrong. Again, there might be things that are insidious in there. I think the pronoun thing is one of them, although it often is good intentioned. I do think it's good intentioned for all that it is insidious in its own way. But just taken as a whole, you know, there's a lot to be said for goodness because the alternative is worse. But goodness is not enough. You know, I think about like Christian art. How did we go from the Pieta? You know, if you're not familiar with the Pieta, P-I-E-T-A, go Google it now. Like, it's Michelangelo's uh, sculpture of uh, Mary holding the corpse of Jesus after he's brought up the cross. You can lose your soul in the Pieta in the best possible way. Like, you can stare into that thing, and and you can see— World, You can see the transcendent. You can see something that goes so far beyond your ability to comprehend in that one work. How do we go from that, from the great uh, cathedrals of Europe, from the Sistine Chapel, from Dante, if we want to get outside of visual art? You know, how do we go from that to, uh, you know, fireproof left behind? Well, what's the aesthetic behind those? It's like, just be positive be encouraging, you know. keep things even keel.
1: Don't get the mark of the beast.
0: Don't get the mark of the beast. Don't sin too much. It's like there's apathy. And I'm not going to mention any names here, but I even think about our own little corner of the Internet when it comes to Christian podcasts. So much of it is like that. Well, let's watch a movie, slap a Bible verse on it, and we're good. We're good. You know, we just finished on the extra feed talking about Apocalypse Now. And I mentioned that, like, you get to the end of Apocalypse Now, and it's like, what does all this mean? And I'm not going to spoil anything if you haven't seen it. And I said, well, you can arrive at, you can give yourself a satisfying answer to that. But it's better to just sit there with it. It's better to just sit there with it. It's like, well, why don't we like to do that? It's this whole goodness thing. Because I I just want to have a good time. And to have a good time, when I get to the end of apocalypse now or anything else, I need to feel resolved. I just want a good time. Okay. Well, it's better than a bad time, I suppose. But there's something else. Because with that is this slide into apathy, where everything has to be safe. Everything has to be neutered. Everything has to be cultivated. We eliminate risk. And is it better than going to hell? Yes, it is. But is that what we're after? Like, is that it? Well, thank God the answer is no. Because what we're really after is holiness. And what we're going to do over the next three weeks is explore what that looks like. You know, And it's going to be something that I think challenges us. You know, the, These three episodes are not going to be the completion of it. They're going to be the beginning of it. It's the beginning. And if you've been listening for a long time, you've probably already gotten tastes of this but I think it's presenting it more holistically. So before this is the prologue here, <laughs> before we get into the meat of the actual episode for this week, I want to throw out this quote. This is one of my favorite quotes, and I think it. I'm going to bring come back to it in every episode that we do. Uh, it's just a, a brief quote from Pope Benedict. And he says, The world promises you comfort, but you were not made for comfort. You were made for greatness. Like, that's it. You know? you have promised a lot of comfort today, whether it's in the form of just trying to minimize inconvenience, whether it's the modern luxuries of life or artistically, like I'm going to harp on that a lot too. You've got a million things that you can just have fun. You can shut off your brain and have fun. The world promises you comfort. You weren't made for comfort. You were made to stare at the Pieta and lose your soul. <laughs> and then maybe find it again, like find something else. Like you were made not to get to the end of apocalypse now and feel satisfied. You were made to wrestle with that, be bothered by it. Like, you know, and I loved your reaction to it. Cause you, you didn't love the movie. Like it bothered you good. Like that's actually really good. You know, it's good that it bothered you. Like let it get under your skin, you know, even in that visceral way of like scenes that just kind of made you physically repulse. Good. Like that's good. You were, weren't were made for comfort. You're made for something else. You're made for holiness. Okay. Prologue over. Let's talk about H.P. Lovecraft. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so where I wanted to start with this is, uh, you know, our title, H.P.A.C. A.C., and J.R.R.T., uh, which you probably all figured out who J.R.R.T. is. I'll reveal the other two now, H.P. Lovecraft and Arthur C. Clarke. Um, so I, this is where I got myself confused in their initials, which I, I think I, uh, is understandable about. So uh, part of where this came out of is that I just finished listening to the collected omnibus works of H.P. Lovecraft uh, and uh, wanted to talk about them. So I figured, why not in the Holiness Trilogy? It sense. It's the per- perfect <laughs> place for it. So, But I, I really liked Lovecraft a lot. And I found I've read bits and pieces of him before, but listening to the whole thing, which if, and there's different collections on Audible, so I'm not listening to his ghost writing, which was the majority of what he did. So it's about 50 to 60 hours of content out there for all of his short stories, novellas, and everything. So, you know, it's a, a long listen, but you're talking about the entire life's work. You can get through it fairly quickly, and it- it's worth it. It's actually really, really entertaining. Uh, and what you get listening to H.P. Lovecraft straight through that I don't think you get in the same way if you just pull out a piece here or there is this sort of entire vision of cosmic terror that exists everybody knows about cthulhu and the, you know a big tentacle octopus monster and everything but cthulhu doesn't show up until about the midpoint of lovecraft's career and what you actually get to by the time you get to the Cthulhu is is that he's just the latest development in this entire cosmic terror idea that Lovecraft has. Lovecraft is best viewed not as a supernatural horror author. There's a fine distinction here, but he's much better viewed as a natural horror author, meaning that he's not trying to write about supernatural things. What he's trying to write about is that what if the natural world that you see and experience every day is just a thin shred of wallpaper over what's really going on? And what's really going on is cosmic terror. Behind there. What's really going on is the elder gods. This is where I say it's a fine distinction between supernatural or not supernatural, but roll with me for the sake of the point, at least. You know, that you can be living your day-to-day life, and then you happen to stumble across an old tomb, and you read an inscription on that tomb, and it manifests an ancient race, and you slowly go insane, or very quickly go insane, and find yourself in Arkham Asylum, because of course Arkham Asylum originates—or actually, it's Arkham University—originates with uh, H.P. Lovecraft, not with uh, Batman. Yeah. You know, you, you, I didn't know that. Well really? No, yeah, yeah. Arkham Asylum is a reference to uh Arkham in uh HP Lovecraft. No, I never knew that. Yeah, and that's part of what's fun about it is that he has a lot of things like that that sort of transcend themselves, like so in The Evil Dead, which I don't think you've ever seen. The, the ancient book, the Necronomicon, is there which is bound in human skin and it's uh it contains all the you know, anybody who reads it can go insane, and that's HP Lovecraft as well.
1: There's something like that in Marvel. Yeah. But they don't call it that. They call it the Darkhold.
0: Yeah, it's probably very similar. Like, H.P. Lovecraft shows up all over the place. And so it's like this idea that you can open up this book and you can – you read it and then you get this esoteric knowledge that's out there and you – go insane because of that. And if you're saying you're mentioning insane a lot, it's like, yes, that's a common theme in H.P. Lovecraft's novels is everybody's going insane. You, you peel back this thin curtain, this thin little bit of wallpaper between yourself and what's really going on, and you discover that on the other side of that thin veil is Cthulhu, or, you know, in Cthulhu's the most popular but like he's got the a, a god that he calls tep the crawling chaos it's like you don't even need to know anything else about it it's just if your god is called the crawling chaos something is wrong
1: <laughs> it's terrific I decided to just check the library to see what is available i I will have to talk off air about which version you read but I the, does this title resonate with you the dark worlds of HP Lovecraft is that what you I mean, mean?
0: there's a I read an, I listened to an omnibus version that has everything. Okay. There's a gajillion out there. So if you, like, if you don't want to listen to the whole thing and just want to get like a taste, yeah, I'd say any collection is okay. going to do that for you. Uh, you know, the mountains at madness is one of his most famous okay. works. And, you know, that's a good example of like an Antarctic expedition and you go up into the remote unexplored Antarctic wilderness and, and you, you find this lost civilization that is going to destroy all of us if we uncover it and make us go insane. Uh, so it's like, well, what's going on here? You know, and, and why are we talking about this in a holiness uh, episode? Well, we we'll- answered the second part of that in just a minute it will become clear but i think a part of what's going on here is something similar to what we've seen when we've talked about authors like kafka you know and other modernist authors it's like lovecraft is writing at the beginning of the 20th century you know he he dies in the mid-1930s um, and really lives kind of just a miserable awful life <laughs> leading up to his, his eventual demise um yeah, and so he, he has about a 20-year period where he's prolific in the 1910s, so 1930s, so really the interwar period, and— It's the whole anxiety of this changing world of modernism. You know, Lovecraft was an atheist, so he's writing not from the supernatural perspective, even if we don't want to go with my fine distinction between supernatural and not, which, by the way, I'm not the only one to make, uh, but, you know, take that for what you will. Certainly the anxieties that he's coming uh, coming up with are the anxieties of modern life. You know, and his real life paralleled it. His mom went into an insane asylum and died. It's like, when was the last time you ever knew anybody to go into an insane asylum? Never. You know, but this was a thing that happened. And, like, people are going into insane asylums and dying. And, and the, like, in his life, this is happening basically every other week. And he's penniless. And, like, life is this horrible thing for H.P. Lovecraft. You know, and he, a lot is made about his... uh racial prejudices and rightly so and I think they don't there's moments in the books they come through but it's not quite as much in the stories but certainly the guy had, had you know he was hung up on, on race issues and but you actually read about his life and I'm not excusing any of his racial attitudes but a lot of it comes out of just this deep well of neuroses that he had and like he's anxious about everything you know he, he hates himself he thinks he's a horrible writer he you know a lot of his stuff isn't published until years later because he gets a a slight bit of criticism decides he sucks and throws it into a, a drawer and it's never seen again. It's you know, the guy's this he's this basket case. Like he's he's failing at life, and then out of that comes this, you know, one of the most influential horror authors of all time. Mm-hmm. You know, but but this to me, when I think about HP Lovecraft a bit more abstractly, is he's facing down the horror of modern life. The horror of being a failure, the horror of what happens when life goes wrong. And he gives that a name of cosmic terror, you know, and you can take that as literally or not as possible. But the point is that there's something there that can drive you insane. It's the same thing that made Kafka worry about waking up and becoming a giant beetle. Of course, he's not literally worried about it, but it's the anxiety of life in the modern world. And I think we feel that same thing. It's like okay, so let's bring this back to holiness for just a second. Why why apathy? Because when we talk about, well, it's better to be a rule follower than to go to hell, you know. It's also better to make your life neat and risk free than it is to peel back the curtain of reality and see the crawling chaos staring back at you. <laughs> and, and even if you know, taking that as a metaphor, like if that's what's behind door number two, maybe don't open door number two. Like that's the lesson of HP Lovecraft. The second person we uh, want to look at here, Arthur C. Clark gives a very different view of all of this. I think I, Arthur C. Clark, and I'm I'm going to preface this by saying I have a lot of uh, affection for him. Of course, he was influential in writing uh, or helping to write the greatest film ever made 2001. Um, I've loved a lot of his novels and in fact this part came from I just reread Childhood's End uh, to my two oldest kids. Uh but with all that affection and love out of the way, I think Arthur C. Clarke was a sociopath. Really? <laughs> yes, I actually do. So <laughs> it, uh, you know, and I don't mean that he was uh going around eating people, but what I mean is that Arthur C. Clarke belonged to a particular brand of modernism that that welcomed humanity's downfall in the form of apathy, and you see this so much in *Childhood's End*. So, uh, and I, I won't spoil anything too specific, but I want to talk about the novel in in the abstract a little bit. So, the premise of *Childhood's Childhood's End* that's a harder word than you'd think to say <laughs> is that aliens show up one day, and they tame humanity. It's like you, you've seen *V*. You right. know, when the aliens show up there. But they're actually lizard people. Mm -hmm. So imagine if they're not actually lizard people. They're just nice. They're
1: just nice. Okay,
0: you know, and so they tame humanity and everything. And so, uh, and this is why when we get back to doing Midwood of the Month, the next one's going to be Arthur C. Clarke with a long digression from Childhood's End because you realize reading this that that for Arthur C. Clarke. He's a brilliant man in a lot of ways and a great author, but he lives in a very simplistic world where if you can just eliminate a few things, everyone's just going to get along. You know, we just eliminate, uh, just make sure everybody has enough food and there's going to be no more war and no more fighting and no more anger and no more poverty. And it's just like it's the most naive thing that you've ever read at the beginning of the novel. But that's not why I label him a sociopath. So the reason I label him a sociopath, and he's dead, so you don't have to feel bad about him finding this. If he's in heaven listening, he knows I'm right. <laughs> you know, so yeah, the reason I label him a sociopath, uh, and and I can tell you're uncomfortable here, but you know people have to own their ideas, even from the grave, is because as the novel goes on, Um, and I'll speak vaguely to not spoil it, you learn that there's another force behind the aliens who have an ultimate purpose for humanity, and it essentially requires humanity to cease to exist in its current form. So I won't be more specific than that. It is a very good novel, and I, I recommend it. But as you watch this play out, And as I read this to my kids, with Mounting Horror, I realized, I think Arthur's on board. Like, I think Arthur actually sees this as a good ending. And I'm having the opposite reaction to it. Because Childhood's End is not a horror novel, but I suddenly realized this is a horror novel. (laughs) This is H.P. Lovecraft again. He's talking about cosmic terror. He's talking about uh, pulling back the veil of reality and now here's not just this first alien civilization but an even more advanced one that wants to consume humanity for its own end. And for Arthur C. Clarke, the destiny of humanity is to go along with it. You know? So we've got two visions here of cosmic terror. The first one is, holy crap, shut the book. You don't want to read the Necronomicon. You're going to go insane. It's awful. The second one is, yes, we do welcome our cosmic overlords. The crawling chaos come right in. And it's funny because as I thought about this, like these are the two, uh, What what is driving our push to apathy, our push to just goodness and nothing more, our push to just be kind. Well, it's these two poles, right? On the one hand, don't rock the boat, okay? You know, if you don't accept people exactly as they are, they might kill themselves. You know, I've, and then I find this very horrific and manipulative, but you, you've heard from trans activists say to parents whose children are dealing with uh, gender dysphoria, like, well, do you want a trans kid or a dead kid? Like what a horrible thing to say, first of all. But that's this. It's like, you know, don't rock the boat. You rock the boat. Your child's going to die. Like, wow. You know, that's a lot. Okay. So, yeah, obviously, if that's the only alternative, and just to be very clear, I don't believe that is the only alternative. I'm not going to get deep into that issue here, but I'm bringing that up as that's one poll. Like, that's the HP Lovecraft poll. You know, here's your cosmic terror. Rock the boat. We're all dead or you're an arkham (laughs) and you're going insane you know but the other pole is this sort of naive utopia that's coming in you know the ai and this is like the ai stuff that i I, i've been talking about look at how good it's gonna make everything look at how nice it's going to be when anything that you want to watch even if it doesn't exist yet you just feed it into the AI and there it is. And it's perfectly tailored to you. You know, when you don't have to work, all your work is done by this. It's this utopian Arthur C. Clark wing of it as well. It's like, if this one is scary, this one is tempting. And where we are right now as a society is in the vice grip between them. We're being crushed between them, and they're both this push to just be kind, just be nice, just fall in line, don't rock the boat, be good, don't break the rules. Again, you can find the conservative, liberal, Christian, atheist, yeah, you know, any version of this that you want, it's out there, and it's crushing us. And those are the two poles. But we have a third author to talk about and leave it to uh, J.R. Tolkien to save the day here, because I'm also reading Lord of the Rings to to my older boys and uh, in Lord of the Rings. And if if you've only seen the movies, uh, you'll remember this part. Aragorn goes to the paths of the dead. And the paths of the dead in the movies are, are good, like, you know, I don't think it's Peter Jackson quite knocked it out of the park, but he also didn't fumble the ball. Like They're they're fine. You know, they're fine. Peter Jackson knows that he needs Aragorn to go uh, retrieve the dead army so that Minas Tirith can be saved. But when you read the book, there's something else going on here, which is that, and you get tastes of this in the movie, but not quite as much, which is that as soon as Aragorn says he's going to the paths of the dead, everybody's like, well, I guess he's out. He's gone. He's not coming back. And it was striking to me reading this, and there's no evidence that Tolkien ever read Lovecraft. So I'm not claiming a direct influence, but there's at least a similar thought process. Because if you read the way Tolkien describes the paths of the dead, it's very Lovecraftian. It's very much the same type of thing.
1: Can you elaborate just a little bit?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the paths of the dead are found in Dunharrow and there's like this long winding path up Dunharrow. And there's a little statues of what Tolkien describes as Pukul men there who are this long gone race. And so you have this, these artifacts, this is in Rohan, but these aren't Rohan artifacts. It's it's artifacts of a long, ancient race that's up there. And then, you know, I have this section. I'm going to read an excerpt here in a second, but when they get to the door, there's strange sigils carved all in this. If you've read any Lovecraft, you're like, oh yeah, I know what okay. happens next. We open the door and we all lose our minds and maybe the universe gets destroyed. You know, so it's very Lovecraftian. So as they get to, I want to read this section here because I, I think it, Illustrates it well. There, under the gloom of black trees that not even Legolas could long endure, they found a hollow place opening at the mountain's root, and right in their path stood a single mighty stone like a finger of doom. My blood runs chill, said Gimli, but the others were silent, and his voice fell dead on the dark fir needles at his feet. The horses would not pass the threatening stone until the riders dismounted and led them about, and so they came at last deep into the glen, and there stood a sheer wall of rock, and in the wall the dark door gaped before them like the mouth of night. Signs and figures were carved above its wide arch, too dim to read, and fear flowed from it like a gray vapor. You know, so you get this sort of sense of like, this is the setup for a horror movie here, or a horror novel. You know, you're going to open this, and all the horrors of the world are going to come through. Again, it's very Lovecraftian. And I'm not saying there's a direct influence, but there's a similar thought process. Here is. We're paling back the thin veil of reality, and here's this door that nobody wants to acknowledge exists, and then as the scene goes on, and they emerge on the other side, and the dead are following them, we get a very Lovecraftian scene where everybody in these little uh, seaside villages is freaking out because the dead is coming with them, and Aragorn and his companions have to stand against them there. And so Tolkien sets up Cosmic Terror. Hmm. And it's fun because, just as a side note, there's a few moments in Tolkien where he he does this. Like, there's also a reference when Gandalf's talking about when he falls with the Balrog that there's older living things in the bottom of the earth that not even Sauron knows about. It's very Lovecrafty and very cosmic terror.
1: So this is interesting because you're saying you have no evidence. Yeah, there's no that evidence. Tolkien read Lovecraft, right? But we know. Some things about his interest. Yeah. You could see a potential it, connection. It would not shock right. me at
0: all, but I'm not asserting it
1: because right. I don't have any evidence for it. Wow.
0: But it, it's wild. There are, there are moments where Tolkien just goes like full cosmic horror for a sentence or two in Lord of the Rings. But you get this. Okay. So it's like, oh, I know how this story goes. Aragorn and everyone else is going to go insane. But they don't. They stand... Against it, they stand up to it, and they conquer the dead, and they save the city because of it. They don't; things go differently.
1: But it is interesting that he writes in a way with that, where he anticipated it'd almost be shorthand that maybe his readers at the time would have understood.
0: Right, right. It, it is really interesting, hmm. you know. And so we get this scene that we're very familiar with, and it goes one hundred percent different. And at this point, it's really easy to say, and and you can hold on to this excuse for one more week, because next week I'm going to obliterate it. Well, that's just Aragorn. I mean, he does it because he's the king, and there's a prophecy about when the king returns, he's going to be able to stand against the paths of the dead. And so, you know, good for him. The rest of us are going the Lovecraft or Arthur C. Clarke route. But then Tolkien does it again. He does it not with... Uh, Aragorn, he does it with Theoden. You know, so Theoden's the king of Rohan. And this is a, a section that only the very end of it is in the movie. And it's really, really good. Uh, so remember, when we first meet Theoden, he's just done. Like he's, he's old, he's washed up. And what I love about his character here, as in, and this will become especially clear as we see what Tolkien does with him in this section of Return of the King, is that nobody is going to blame Theoden if he's just done. Nobody's going to blame him if he sits this one out. He's an old man. He's done. And so he's not the Aragorn. There is isn't this prophecy around him. Like, he's finished. There's no reason for him to not be apathetic at this point and just slide into, not just accept he was a good king, not a great king, he was okay, and just end it with a clean slate. You know, that option is open to him. But of course he doesn't, and he, you know, he fights with Helm's Deep and everything, and then uh, eventually in the movie we get the great scene where the the Rohirrim show up and they charge to save Minas Tirith at its darkest point in the siege of Gondor, and it's it's honestly like that's a moment Peter Jackson gets perfect. Like it is phenomenal. It's it's one of the great moments in the trilogy. But what Peter Jackson leaves out is what happens to Theoden on the ride up to Minas Tirith. And it just so happens that Theoden, as they're getting to Minas Tirith, they realize they're not going to get to Gondor in time because the orcs have established a lot of pitfalls along the roads. They can't ride as far as they want to. Like, they're not going to make it on time. There's not a chance. And who do they happen to meet? But the descendants of these same Pukul men who were part of these ancient carvings around the paths of the dead. I was like, well, that's interesting. We've seen this before. Mm-hmm. And they ally themselves with these wild men out there. The guy's name is Gonbury Gon, and he's like this this sort of barbarian-like creature. And they ally themselves with them, and it's, it's really terrific, because then, as Theoden does this, he takes a different path and he takes the wild man's path and he gets to gondor on time and i have a very long section here i'm not going to read all of it but i want to read some of it here because then we kind of get a repeat of what we've seen before of theoden's just done and there's every reason for him to be done so this is from mary's perspective after a while, the king led his men away southeastward, somewhat eastwards, to come between the fires of the siege and the outer fields. Still they were unchallenged, and still Théoden gave no signal. At last he halted once again. The city was now nearer, the smell of burning was in the air, and a very shadow of death. The horses were uneasy, but the king sat upon Snowmane, motionless, gazing upon the agony of Minas Tirith, as if stricken suddenly by anguish or by dread. He seemed to shrink down, cowed by age. Merry himself felt as if a great weight of horror and doubt had settled on him. His heart beat slowly. Time seemed poised in uncertainty. They were too late. Too late was worse than never. Perhaps Théoden would quail, bow his old head, turn, slink away to hide in the hills. And it's like, nobody would blame him. A battle's over. Then suddenly, Mary felt it at last, beyond doubt, a change. Wind was in his face. Light was glimmering. Far, far away in the south, the clouds could be dimly seen as remote gray shapes rolling up, drifting, morning lay beyond them. But at that same moment, there was a flash, as if lightning had sprung from the earth beneath the city. For a searing second, it stood dazzling far off in black and white, its topmost tower like a glittering needle. And then as the darkness closed again, there came rolling over the fields a great boom. At that sound, the bent shape of the king spread suddenly erect. Tall and proud he seemed again, and rising in his stirrups he cried in a loud voice, more clear than any there had ever heard a mortal man man achieve before. So this is Theoden. Arise, arise, riders of Theoden, fell deeds awake, fire and slaughter, spears shall be shaken, shield be splintered. And by the way, as a brief note here, one of the things I love about Tolkien is he slips into alliterative poetry. So if you know anything mm-hmm. about, like, the way Beowulf or the old, you know, Norse poetry, old english poetry it's this alliterative style where you hear the same sound again and again and he does this here and he's doing it in poetry but you'll actually hear it in the prose in a second so that's just your little side 30 second episode on on cool stuff shield be splintered a sword day a red day ere the sun rises ride now ride now ride to gondor and then you know it's like okay well that's impressive with that he seized a great horn from Guthlaf, which what a great name his banner bearer and he blew such a blast upon it that it burst asunder so theoden's gone from this bent over guy he blows his horn so hard that it blows up in his hands and straight away all the horns in the host were lifted up in music and the blowing of the horns of Rohan in that hour was like a storm upon the plain and a thunder in the mountains ride now ride now ride to gondor suddenly the king cried to snowmane and the horse sprang away behind him his banner blew in the wind white horse upon the field of green but he outpaced it after him thundered the knights of his house but he was ever before them aemir rode there the white horse tail on his helm floating in his speed and the front of his first era roared like a breaker foaming into the shore but theoden could not be overtaken fey he seemed or the battle fear fey he seemed or the battle fury of his fathers again fey fury fathers this is we're in prose now but tolkien's like he's breaking the boundaries of the of the medium which is just terrific Ran like new fire in his veins, and he was borne up on Snowmane like a god of old, even as Orome the Great in the battle of the Valar when the world was young. His golden shield was uncovered, and lo, it shone like an image of the sun, and the grass flamed into green about the white feet of his steed. For morning came, morning and a wind from the sea, and darkness was removed, and the hosts of Mordor wailed, and terror took them, and they fled and died, and the hoofs of wrath rode over them. And then all the host of Rohan burst into song, and they sang as they slew for the joy of battle was on them and the sound of their singing that was fair and terrible came even to the city it's just incredible Mm -hmm. so like what does that have to do with anything okay well if you just want to have fun it doesn't have anything to do with anything if you're just interested in apathy it doesn't have anything to do with anything But if you see this as an alternative vision to the vice that we're getting crushed between, then it has everything to do with everything. Because what Tolkien is saying is that there is another alternative. And you don't get off the hook by saying, well, that's just Aragorn. Because here you've got a guy who's exactly where we are as a culture. There is every reason to slide into apathy because it's all right there. It's all delivered to you on a, on a platter. Life's never been easier, you know, and life's only going to keep getting easier. It's right there. Just be nice. Just be a good human. Just be kind. Obey the rules. Mark your time and get out. But you were not made for comfort. You were made for greatness. And what Tolkien is showing us here is that there is another path And when you take that other path, you can become transcendent. Like that transformation from ready to turn tail and slink off to blowing the horn so loud it blows up in his hands and he's out racing everybody. It's just it's 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 a phenomenal piece of prose, but it's also just deeply true. And the thing I want to highlight here in both of these cases is like, how do Aragorn and Theoden get there? Okay. Because what the mistake to make now would be to take this as like a motivational speech. It is motivating. It's inspiring. But it's like, yeah, be a Theoden. No, that's just the same apathetic nonsense we're fighting against. Because it's too shallow. It's not enough. Like, what's the other feature of this story? To get there, to be the type of person who can stand against cosmic terror, you have to go to the halls of the dead. You have to go the path of the wild man. There's something else that's required of you. You know, I hope this episode inspires people, but I hope you come back for more because I'm actually not that interested in inspiring you. Because inspiring inspiration and motivation, they're like the, the initial rocket boosters. Great. You know, they, they might get you up into the upper atmosphere, but they're not going to get you to the moon beyond. You're going to need something else. You're gonna need something you're you're gonna to need to be able to go to the paths of the dead, you know, and find what Aragorn found there. And that's what we're gonna talk about the next two weeks. We're gonna talk about what does that look like? Because motivation's crap. Maybe it gets you through the next week. I hope it does. I hope it inspires you to come back for more. But if we're gonna go after holiness, not goodness, if we're gonna be holy people, not good people. If we're gonna just put the lie to that nonsense that Jesus came so that we could be nice to each other, like what absolute garbage! Oh, we're gonna have to go to some dark places, some really dark places, and that's where we start next week.
1: Wow, I mean, I know this is also part, it was part one, but it also feels like an introduction to the whole big conversation. Yeah, so love it. Thanks, Ben, for putting that together, and I can't wait for next week. Do you want to give us a tease on? uh the title for next week or is it gonna be more letters and no no
0: no (laughs) so the title for next week (laughs) it makes me laugh because we already hit on part of this conversation when we were doing uh uh, heart of darkness um and you know i have a different perspective here to the podcast than everyone else does because i get to watch you oh no and like there's Sometimes, you know, I'll see you engaged a lot. Uh, sometimes i see you get a little nervous. Every Very rarely do I see fear. But when, I, when we were in the middle of Hearts of Darkness and I started talking about how great extremists were, I saw fear. <laughs> <laughs> so next week we're going to talk about extremists. God bless the extremists. All right. Wow. Okay. Uh, I and, just... and just to... Uh, uh, You'll hear what that means. I'm not pro-Osama bin Laden, just to put that record straight in case you don't come back for the next episode.
1: Uh, You know how there's those Bible verses about, like, be holy as I am holy or be perfect as Jesus is perfect? Are you going to touch on those verses? Oh, yeah, yeah. Because sometimes those verses seem unattainable.
0: Yeah, they do, right? Yeah, no, I'm I'm actually excited. I'm going to bring up one of my favorite Bible verses next week, and it's my favorite because every excuse that you have— for why you can't do this and why you should just accept apathy. If you take this Bible verse seriously, like, it just stomps you in about two words. You know, and this is, like, you will come up, like, when we talk about this journey from goodness to holiness, you are going to come up with every reason why you can't do it. It's such nonsense. You can do it.
1: All right, listeners, that's all from here. I'm Matt Anderson. I'm Ben DiBono. And we're the Cyber Christians signing off.
0: Right, goodbye.